Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories, one of the last shows of uh, 2023. And you could, if you notice, I have the uh, the white banner behind me, so that must mean I'm in a different location, and I sure am. I'm in Jupiter, Florida, uh, planning to stay for the better part of the winter till I have to come home in March for my son's wedding. And uh, so that's where we are. And so we'll be live from Jupiter, Florida. You know, one of the most intriguing cases of 2023 was the whole Adelson case, which, of course, revolved around the 2014 uh, murder of uh, Daniel Markell, who was the husband of Wendy Adelson. And we'll get into the whole story but that's what we're going to sort of recap. And, and is the case over or where is it going from here? There's been so many twists and turns in this case. And by no means, the, the homicide occurred in 2014. By no means was this an easy case to solve. And when you see how it evolved and what a great job the authorities did down here in, in Miami, just unbelievable uh excuse me not not miami actually where the homicide took place i believe it's tallahassee uh so they did a, a tremendous job and of course they did coordinate with the prosecutor in in miami but an unbelievable case and we're going to recap that today so guys hold on to your seats and get ready to enter the off the cuff zone the police off the cuff zone There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped in Tampa Grant, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. We're back. So joining me today, of course, and you know something, one of the things I really appreciate, and in 2023, of course, we have one more day after today of 2023, is the participation I get from my co-hosts. And the most frequent flyers, of course, have been Professor Mike Geary, uh, a professor at Albertus Magnus College in, in Connecticut, uh, retired NYPD sergeant, lawyer, and uh, just all around Nice guy and laid back guy. We sometimes call him Father Geary. And also, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. And I I mean, they know how I feel about them privately, but they've done such an amazing job with me. And if you've ever done a podcast, you would know how difficult it is to do it by yourself. Because not only are we the hosts, but we're doing all kinds of different things posting of videos, photos, uh, trying to speak, reading our notes. So, and I'm not trying to uh, get applause or anything. I'm just saying. So it's so great. I just want to say how much I appreciate Mike Geary and, and Phil Grimaldi. So without further ado, let me invite retired NYPD sergeant, professor at Albertus Magnus, law degree, and he, he has a confession every once in a while. Professor Mike Geary. Mike, how you doing? Hey, Billy. Good afternoon. Good to see you. Good, e good afternoon, everyone. 
You know, it's always great, Mike, when I when I call you with about an hour or two hours notice, say, Mike, what are you doing at three o'clock? Are you available? And you're like, uh, yeah, I'm really not doing anything. Squeeze you in like, there. Yeah. It's so great because I do a lot of things at the spur of the moment. I said, let's let's just go. Let's do it. Let's go ahead. Let's right. let's let's do it. So, Mike, one of the cases, and again, perhaps tomorrow we may come on and and highlight three of the top cases of 2023. Okay. And this one wasn't on it, although it's very close. However, the the Adelson case is filled with surprises, and it goes back almost ten years yeah. to 2014. So. My the whole dissertation today, of course, and, and you, you see it on the flyer uh, that I, that I that I put out on YouTube, and here it is on the screen. The Adelson family saga: Charles Adelson sentenced to life, Donna Adelson arrested. Is Wendy next? And Wendy, of course, is the person all the way on the left of that thumbnail, and that's a question that we don't know the answer to, but I believe that this prosecution is not going to stop at the mother Donna. Your thoughts? Billy, you know, I think the prosecutors would love to get Wendy um, because she's the uh, the black widow in this. She's the one who, um, by complaining to her brother uh, um, and her mother and her father, um, you know, pr set the seeds, uh, planted the seeds of this of the beginning of this uh, horrific uh, murder for hire with, uh, with her husband. And uh, it's really sad. I would think that uh, depending on how it goes with the mother, what she may say, uh, what may happen at trial, whatever deal they may have with her, um, you know, Wendy would be, I, I think, the um, like the cherry in the Sunday on top of the Sunday. But um, they're going after the mother right now because they have some information, some of the things that she'd said and and some checks that she'd written. And so, therefore, um, she's next in line. But if I'm a prosecutor, I would love to have Wendy because without her starting the ball rolling down the hill, this would never have happened. This homicide would never have happened in a million years. You know, and up on the screen is the picture of their the family. And, of course, to the left, Dan Markell an attorney, a professor of law. Um, and the single uh, photo here is, of course, Wendy, Wendy Adelson, who sort of is, I guess you could say, the catalyst of this whole situation because it would have never happened without her. And the, the one you see on the screen there, Wendy Adelson and her mom, Donna Adelson. Yeah, and you see how much they actually do look alike. But Donna's been arrested. <clears throat> Donna's an elderly woman now awaiting a trial, awaiting a trial in jail, uh, held without bail. Because as we know, at part of this story, Mike, is that when she sort of got word that mm -hmm. potential was there, that she was going to get arrested, what did she do? Well, she booked a flight uh, by, by way of Dubai right. to Vietnam uh, because they don't have an extradition treaty right. with the United States, thinking that would keep her safe. But what they didn't realize, and what, what the naivete, if I may say, use that word, the naivete of these very, you would think, smart people, at least edu let's say educated people, right? Very educated people. Right. They spoke so freely on their phones and texted so freely on their phones and communicated so freely. Isn't there a chance, you think, that Big Brother, and in this case, 
the popo, as we used to say up in Harlem. The popo. <laughs> right. Don't you think the popo were listening? Yeah, they were listening, and they get recording everything you say. So how could you be at least that educated? And again, when I say smart, people kill me in the chat. What do you mean they're smart? Just because they're educated does okay. All right. So I'll say now, we know that they're educated. Maybe they weren't that smart. Your thoughts? Yeah, Billy. You know, you know, intelligence doesn't always can't always be measured by education. You may have somebody with a high school education who may be smarter than a whole lot of other people have a whole lot more common sense. Um, she's very, very educated. The whole family is, and she was actually doing the books for Harvey's, uh, her husband Harvey's practice when he established everything many, many years ago in the eighties. So she's been an integral part uh, of that, of that growing business. So those ladies got some smarts. However, being heard saying to her son on like, a, I think a jail cell, uh, jail phone, you know, that, um, I have to get out of here. Maybe I'm going to commit suicide. I, I can't stay, you know, something like that to those, to that effect. And then booking a one-way trip to Vietnam, you know, it's like, you know, the, 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 we can always joke around about the police, the FBI and, and the competition they have, but when they're working together and you've got a good work relationship with other agencies, you can accomplish so much so quickly. They jumped on that and they got her as she was just about to board the flight. And so thank goodness they did that. But she is, uh, that's the definition of a flight risk. It's also the definition of somebody who may be suicidal. And right now she's on suicide watch. And that's what's uh, driving her and her attorney crazy because she's there. And when you're on suicide watch, you don't have a lot of freedoms at all. You're watched 24 seven. You've got not even a bit of privacy. And she, uh, feels that uh, that's, you know, a violation of her, her right to, you know, uh, cry cruel and, against cruel and unusual punishment. But she is um, the, the essential person who took her daughter's uh, criticisms and then put those criticisms of her ex-husband, uh, put the whole thing actually in, it took the complaints that started the whole series of, of other instances and the mother was the, you know, the, in, the person who was making sure people got paid, making sure her son was taking care of it. And therefore, they have a lot of electronic information. Uh, her fingerprints aren't on a murder weapon, but they certainly have uh, all kinds of text messages, phone, phone uh, taps, things like that. So the police know exactly what her role is in this case. She's the matriarch of the family. But she, uh, she was a, is a cold-blooded person, and what she did was put her daughter's wishes into a murderous plan, and she's paying the price right now. Absolutely, charisma. Thank you so much for the two-dollar super sticker, and happy New Year to you also, uh, as well as Jacqueline Johnston, manifested. Thank you so much uh, for your ten-dollar super sticker, and here's to 2024 being a better year for everyone. Hi, professors, Cannon and Geary. You know, it's funny. I, I don't get called professor anymore, Mike, ever since I quit teaching in 2016. I, you know, I always tell the story. Um, I was up in up in Harlem. I forget exactly what street, 137th Street on 35th. And I'm standing around a dead body of a um, 16 or 17-year-old kid. The crime scene tape is up. And I go underneath the tape, and all of a sudden I hear someone go, Hi, Professor Cannon! 
<laughs> and I turned oh, around wow. and it was one of my students. And I was, you know, you know, I'm Sergeant Cannon here, you know, at the crime scene. So I wasn't prepared when someone shouted out, hi, Professor Cannon. And it was a little, uh, but I never lost my sense of humor. I always saw that it was somewhat ironic, somewhat funny, but uh, standing underneath the crime scene tape, it, uh, it was a little bizarre to hear you, someone say, hey, Professor Cannon. So when we look at the, um, this is the whole, the sort of almost you could say a rogues gallery in a way, right? And if we look from um, from all the way to the right, Dan Markell uh, is the victim. And uh, guys, if you're listening to this, I'm showing a, a picture of all the players in this case on the screen. And then above uh, Dan Markell is his wife, Wendy Adelson, an attorney, testified a great deal in this case so far has not been arrested and the expectations by many people in the real crime world the true crime world in the legal world is that down the road uh she could very well get arrested because after all there is no statute of limitations for for murder so if they don't have a case next year they don't have a case two years. They don't have a case five years from now. Ten years from now, she could be arrested for the murder of Dan Markell. So keep that in mind. Harvey Adelson, the the uh, the patriarch of this family, uh, dentist, right? He so far hasn't been arrested. Could he be part of this and complicit in this? And then, of course, we have to his left, well, actually, me looking at it, the left, Donna Adelson, and she's been arrested. And that's the mom. That's the matriarch of the family. And she is awaiting trial. And as Mike said, they're holding her in jail right now because she's a flight risk and she's a danger to herself. And they could even say a danger to the community. Charles Adelson, periodontist, sentenced to life without parole. Below him, Catherine Magwanua, she also sentenced to life without parole. And she was the one who facilitated the shooters here. Sigfredo Tuto Garcia, he is the actual shooter um, in this case. And he is the baby, the baby's father of Catherine Magwanua's two children. And just to his... Uh, my, well, my right as I'm looking, Luis Tato Rivera, who was a high-ranking Latin king, and he was the driver in this case. He didn't fire his gun. He had a gun. And a lot of people, Mike, don't understand the concept of acting in concert. Right. And even though he did not pull that trigger, the law looks at it like, yes, you did, because you acted in concert. You were the driver, and you fully intended if the other guy didn't shoot him, you were perfectly willing to. But he was offered some kind of deal to testify. So he's not going to be doing life without parole. He's sort of, but people that I've noticed, many people in the chat, and look, I, I appreciate and I really respect everyone's opinion in the chat as long as they keep it, keep it real and keep it uh, courteous and not get, you know, not get uh, insulting or anything like that. I respect him, but some people were pointing at him like, oh, he oh, he, he testified and he he did, he wasn't one of the shooters, but 
He was one of the conspirators. He was willing to do whatever was necessary to kill Daniel Markell. You know, speak upon that, Mike. Yeah, he wasn't just a tangential, you know, way out in the distance somewhere uh, participant. He was actually driving, you know, the hit, the shooter to the uh, location where Dan Markell was, the, the home. Uh, without him, you know, the shooter may not have gotten there. They were acting in concert. They were, you know, with, without one, the other one couldn't act. So therefore, his his participation was essential for the success of their hit. And as you said, he had a gun on him at the same time. It wasn't like he had no idea what Sig, what Sig Fredo was going to do. Like, oh, we're just driving around a neighborhood. No, he knew Sig Fredo and, and he were looking for the husband, you know, Dan Markell. They knew they had to go to a location. They agreed to it. They got paid for this. They were going to do it. Um, he was there. And probably also, in case anything happened, the fact that he had a firearm himself just demonstrates the fact that he was ready, willing, and able to use that firearm in addition to driving. So therefore, you know, these aren't uh, people who uh, can say they weren't really sure what was going to happen. No, he was a indispensable part of the homicide. Absolutely. He's as guilty as anyone else in this, whether or not somebody got was paid, uh, was the money man, somebody was uh, rented the vehicle, somebody provided the firearms, somebody did the shooting, you know, all that sort of stuff. All of these things are essential for the outcome to occur, and it did. And therefore, everybody was on the same page, working together to this nefarious end, the death of Dan Markell, the assassination death of Dan Markell. Yeah. You know, Mike, so many times, I, I, so I don't understand if our audience gets it or not just our audience, but the concept of acting in concert. Because, you know, um, California was talking about getting rid of that part of the law. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's crazy. crazy. It's, it's nuts. So if you conspire to kill somebody and you're just on the scene and you didn't, you didn't pull the trigger, they were talking about dropping charges against that. And, you know, we used to have that a lot in the crime of robbery. You know, robbers go out and sometimes two at a time, three, four, sometimes five, six, sometimes more than that. And if you're going to only charge the person that physically did the beat down and not the, not the person that was the lookout, not the person that by sheer uh, force of being there intimidated the victim, then... That, that's a crazy law. That's what in concert is about. Look, you can what's it what's it called um, when you uh, when you're thinking of doing a crime and then a oh, renunciation, I think it is. A renunciation, and, right? Renunciation. Yes. Wow, look at how I remember these legal words. I'm not <laughs> even a lawyer. In, in route to the crime or whatever, you decide I'm not going to do it, and you take action to remove yourself. Right. You, you could always do action. that, and then I could see that, but. When you act in concert and you plan it and you take part in it right up to the point of mm -hmm. pulling the trigger, you're, you're in the trick bag as a straight out of Brooklyn Phil Grimaldi yeah. would say. Because you're benefiting directly from it. If you're a lookout or you're somebody who provides the weapon, you're probably driving the, the getaway car, you, you're the planner. If you are benefiting in any way, shape or form from this occurrence, you are an active participant. You are equally responsible, whether you pull the trigger or you hit the person, whatever your role is, no matter how minor it is, you're holding the bag for the entire group of people. 
everybody's acting in concert and they know what they want to do. There's a single purpose to it and everybody will benefit from it. So therefore you can't say that you're uh, not responsible as anyone else. Like you're 15% responsible and somebody else's worth is, you know, 45% responsible. No, 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 no. This isn't a math problem. You're there. You're in the bag. You know, I remember, uh, you know, working in anti-crime, which is another thing that went the way of uh, a mm -hmm. horse and buggy. No more anti-crime, which was one of the most effective units on the NYPD. And and I can proudly say I did six and a half years in playing clothes, one in street crime. And the only reason I left street crime was because I got, I got promoted to sergeant. I loved street crime. Yeah. But I did um, five and a half more years, one as the, like, three as a cop and three as a sergeant. Uh, and I might have the numbers off a little bit there. Three and a half in total in plain clothes as a cop and then three as a sergeant. Um, I thought it was one of the most effective units on the NYPD. And one of the things they would, we would have to articulate, you would watch someone on the street or a group of people that appeared to be by their actions were going to commit a robbery. And we would set up on them with our anti-crime team, much like robbers would set up on victims. Right. And we would actually almost have to wait till the robbery went down and then move in and make the arrest. And some people would be unhappy with that. Well, why didn't you just break it up? Well, because if we prevent it, that's not why we're there. We're there to arrest people and put them in prison. If we break it up, they'll just go to the next block and rob someone and they'll get away with it. And we won't be there. So this is how anti-crime used to work. And what we used to have to, to articulate to the district attorney was that what each person did in the robbery. And not everyone was the force guy. Oh, this guy uh, this guy was looking back and forth. He was clearly the lookout. But you would have to articulate or they would decline prosecution against right. part of the crew if you could not articulate what each person did. And that was very difficult in uh, Wolfpack robberies, we used to call them. We used to get criticized for saying that, you're comparing humans to wolves. Well, that's how they behave. Yeah. When five or six guys jump upon a single victim, beat the shit out of him, and take his property, that's how they're behaving, like wolves, you know? And they, we used to, people would get all upset. Oh, you're comparing humans? Well, again, that's how they're behaving. Anyway, that would happen in Wolfpacks, and especially right. like in Times Square. I mm -hmm. remember one time, a guy walked into a crowd of people and he came out with just his underwear on. <laughs> they actually ripped everything off him. And I was like, did you see that? And there was one guy who was holding a piece of his sweater. And that's who I grabbed. And yeah. I grabbed him and he got charged with robbery. The rest of the people, they all, boom, they all, as they say in police parlance, they jetted. They jetted <laughs> away. Yeah. And this guy got charged with the robbery. And the, the guy in his underwear had to testify against him, you know, it was, it was crazy. And of course, what was the guy doing at five o'clock in the morning on the deuce uh, on a Sunday, early Sunday morning, you know, Saturday into Sunday? Well, right. he was trying to score drugs, of course. Right. Right. And then uh, for his efforts, he got robbed. <laughs> yeah, Billy, there's you know, when you have that kind of wolf pack uh, robbery and I agree, they're acting as 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 animals, as instinctual. You circle around the victim and you take them down. You know, everybody is a part of that. So like um, with uh, the two hitmen, they both got paid. Um, I'm not exactly sure how much, somewhere around $100,000, perhaps. I'm not exactly sure. They both benefited. They both bought vehicles after this. Um, they knew each other. They trusted each other. You know, 
they are no less culpable in my eyes than the than the mother, than her son, you know, um, than the lady uh, Catherine who passed the money back and forth. They all were had their role in making the murder occur. Um, nobody tried to stop this. Nobody stepped away. Nobody renounced their involvement in it. Nobody went to the police. There's no evidence at all that anybody tried to do anything else other than make sure that the murder occurred. And, and that's the sad part. So they all deserve whatever they get. No tears. Absolutely, Mike. You know, and here's on the screen. I just want to sort of um, recap. For nearly a decade, this is according to the New York Times, the sensational killing of prominent Florida law professor in 2014 centered on a single sordid question. Did his ex-wife's family, motivated by an ugly custody dispute, hire hitmen to murder him? Uh, well, we found out uh, about a month ago, Charles Adelson, the former brother-in-law of the slain professor, Dan Markell, he was charged with first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit murder, and solicitation murder. And he was sentenced to life in prison. Uh, when he was sentenced, he closed his eyes and he mouthed no, put his head down when the verdict was read at the Leon County Courthouse in Tallahassee, Florida. The jury deliberated for a little more than three hours after eight days of testimony, including from Mr. Adelson himself, who took the rare step of testifying in his own defense. You know, Mike, that's one of the things. Whenever a client testifies in their own defense, you know they got major problems. Because oh, yeah. Most attorneys will say, do not testify. You're a fair game mm -hmm. for the, you know, for the uh, pickle you stole from that deli when you were eight years old till, yeah. you know, a, a test you cheated on in dental school. You know, all of that is fair game once you get up on the stand and testify. That's right. It's all irrelevant uh, because it doesn't pertain. All those old things you did in, in the past would not be considered relevant. The judge wouldn't allow the admission of it against you in a particular case, like in this case, a homicide. However, the moment you take the stand, just like uh, the defendant takes the stand, just like any other witness at all, any other witness, their credibility is on the line. So therefore, um, anything that they've done that shows a tendency towards dishonesty, deceit, uh, in this case, also perhaps violence, you know, all of these things, they become relevant for the jury to determine what is his state of mind, what is his propensity for peace, what is his propensity for honesty, what is his propensity for violence. And so when you see a defendant take the stand, you know that's a desperate move. That's the uh, Hail Mary pass in football. That's the fourth down and 40 yards to go. You're just chucking the ball. And, you know, it's the, it's the last roll of the dice and all those other euphemisms you could use. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when we look at this case also, and we put up on the screen Donna Adelson and uh, to the right, Charles Adelson in the middle, Dan Markell. Um, Mr. Adelson, a 47-year-old periodontist from Fort Lauderdale, is the fourth person convicted in Mr. Markell's death, which has been dissected over the years in news articles, television shows, and a podcast. It's been nearly nine years since Danny was brutally murdered in cold blood and it's taken a tremendous effort to get to this point, his parents, Ruth Markell and Phil Markell, said in a statement after uh, the verdict. Uh, according to the prosecutors, Mr. Adelson arranged and paid for two men, Sigfredo Garcia and Luis Rivera, 
uh, there they are right on the screen, uh, a leader of the North Miami Latin Kings gang to drive to Tallahassee from Miami and kill Mr. Markell so that his ex-wife, Wendy Adelson, could re relocate to South Florida with the couple's two young sons. Uh, a judge had denied her relocation petition after the divorce. The murder was arranged, prosecutor said, through Catherine Magbanua, Mr. Adelson's girlfriend at the time, who had two children with Garcia. Mr. Rivera pled guilty to second-degree murder in 2016. He was sentenced to 19 years in prison and testified against Mr. Garcia, Ms. Magbanua, and Mr. Adelson. A jury convicted Mr. Garcia of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder in 2019. He was sentenced to life in prison. When we hear about this case, Mike, it's uh, baffling that all of these people destroyed their lives. Not to mention, sometimes we lose the fact of what this really is about. And of course, what that is about is the murder of Dan Markell, who right. is right there. Uh, or this is a better picture probably there. Dan Markell with his wife, Wendy, right there. That's what this case is really about. It became also about how these educated people, I won't say smart, these educated people thought that they could get away with murder. They were watching too many episodes of The Sopranos, and they thought they were going to be able to have their, well, in the case of Charles Adelson, his brother-in-law, in the case of the mom, her, you know, her son-in-law, murdered. And that would get rid of all their problems. And for this, they're all going to be sitting in prison for the rest of their life. I tell you, Billy, one of the tragedies, as you're pointing out, is that, you know, um, it didn't have to be this way. At one point, there was talk uh, with Donna and perhaps Harvey um, as being the matriarch and patriarch of the family. They were trying to help their daughter, Wendy, and they were thinking about trying to uh, buy off Dan with uh, like something like I, I saw I read somewhere a million dollars that they would give him a huge amount of money if he would drop any efforts to uh, limit the Adelson's um, um, uh, visitation and things like that and just settle with uh, with their daughter Wendy real quick because um, he wanted to move the kids uh, she didn't want them and she was going to threaten to move them somewhere else and they were both given 50 50 visitation and you know, it could have ended with an exchange of some money. And also, there was, as from what I can tell, doing reading of the case, there was never, ever an indication that I know of where Dan Markell ever abused uh, Wendy, physically abused her. It wasn't like they were protecting the, 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 the life of, of their daughter from this ogre. Um, it didn't seem that was at all. That, that word ogre is really reserved for Rex Ewerman. Okay, okay. <laughs> You're yeah, mixing that into this case. Yeah, he fits the description. Yeah. But, you know, there wasn't even any sort of uh, violence or domestic violence ever, ever laid against um, the husband. So why they would go to such an extreme actual murder when they were actually thinking about giving him some money and they go to murder? You know, you're left scratching your head, and that's a sad part. It didn't have to be. This could have all been ended so easily with perhaps money or just live with the fact that their son-in-law 
is upset with their daughter and they've had this and let them just work it out as a, as a former husband and wife and the, the son, um, you know, and the, and the mother, the matriarch and the son putting this together, this sad, violent uh, murder. It, it didn't ever have to be. There was never any reason for any sort of violence by anyone. So sad. Crazy. Let's hear a little bit of her um, jailhouse calls. Everyone seems to be enamored with this. Let's play a little bit of this. If it'll play. Got to have the calls. I do. Perfectly honest. I do. We'll do it together. Leave a note. They'll know when to come and get us. And we'll do it together. The boy. Look, better make a decision at some point. So after speaking to Dan this morning and knowing what they're thinking up there, I don't know if we'll make it out in time. I really don't. Mm, and there we hear her saying the word we a lot. So we're asking the question this morning. So Mike, uh, again, yeah. amazing, right? Like you would think, okay, uh, again, some intelligent people speaking so freely uh speaking so freely on the phone about what you know about her intentions about talking about committing suicide when clearly she's a suspect and talking to her son in jail who is you know they listen to your phone calls in, yeah in jail you know it's not a secret i think they tell you that but yet people continue not to believe it and they keep talking you know and they they don't realize that for some reason maybe they feel like their cell phone is private you know or their text messaging is private or what they say on an on, an, on a phone is private no you your family you got to know by this point the, the your son-in-law was killed nine years ago you know your your son is um, uh you know is is the is the main suspect you know he's been convicted you got to know that they're looking at you and you got to know that you have no privacy. You got to consider yourself 24 seven under the watch of the police, you know, either electronically or physically, you know, watching your home, how you could not think that you you're, you're in that position and that you actually have privacy at this point. Again, it's, you know, smart and stupid at the same time. You know, Wendy Adelson, um, not just a mom of two sons with a, her ex-husband, Dan Markell, um, but a lawyer in her own right. Uh, a smart person. I, I use the term smart, maybe I killed again. An educated person right. with a law degree. And the fact that she testified pretty damn skillfully and didn't say anything like that was like a smoking gun right. to get her put in the trick bag, but some things that do implicate her. I want to play a little bit of her testimony here because, look, you can easily say someone inadvertently, especially if you're on a stand, if you've ever testified, you could say mm -hmm. things you didn't mean to say because lawyers are peppering you with questions and you don't, they try to get you not to think about your answer. Sometimes an attorney prosecutor in this circumstance will get into a rhythm and try right. to keep you as part of their rhythm to get you to answer quickly. So maybe you answer incorrectly or you say something you did not mean to say. 
I did. I, I thought I was a pretty good uh, witness when I testified. Uh, and I would never allow an attorney to, to do that to me. When an attorney started to pepper me with questions quickly, I would purposely slow down. And if he objected to me slowing down, I would ask him to repeat the question. And that would totally throw his rhythm off. Or right. I would say, I, I, I'm not sure I really understand your question. And really, as far as well as it was an attorney's technique to try to get you to answer quickly, it's a witness's technique to try to get the attorney to slow down. And in no way was I not, I was telling the truth. However, I wanted to make sure I told the truth the way I remembered and not at the speed that this attorney wanted it because he wanted me to say something that was incorrect. That's right. That's right. Um, it's one of the battles that occurs in a trial when the prosecutor is asking questions and um, the defense doesn't like it, whatever they're, whatever they're doing, they're going to sit there, start objecting and, uh, you know, just breaking the rhythm. That's a very important thing to do for as an adversary, whether you're a defense attorney or prosecutor, that's part of the chess match in the uh, in the court in the courtroom is to try to get the person to stop and and backpedal a little bit and then get get and get them to uh, respond to an objection and maybe get the judge involved and by the time they get back to their original questioning they're like uh, um, okay where oh here here I am yeah one more. and then you know you slowed everything down it gives the the witness a chance also to compose themselves absolutely that's a really important uh, strategy in the courtroom. You know, Mike, just as a courtroom is the home turf or the home court of an attorney, a prosecutor, the street and the, the squad are, are our home court. So in the same way that we can't be expected to be as good at the courtroom game as an attorney is or a prosecutor is, we, you know, a suspect or a witness can't be expected to be, to you know, to match wits with an experienced detective in a squad room or, or on the street. That's right. Well, you have to realize that and not get so cocky that you think that, oh, I can take on this attorney. No, you can't. You cannot because he has certain things over you that he has the advantage. The court purposely gives a defense attorney and a prosecutor an advantage in the court. Let me play a little bit of Wendy Adelson in her testimony. And to me, she's an excellent witness. Did you rent a house in Tallahassee after the murder? No, I didn't live in Tallahassee after the murder. Did the boys go to school that fall here in Tallahassee? No, all our plans were broken. And what was the purpose of those questions? Of course you didn't. You moved to South Florida. You didn't have plans in Tallahassee if they got executed. Why, why were you asked about all those things? So as you can see, this prosecutor is outstanding. She is really an excellent, she's very well prepared. Um, I don't know why it's loading. There we go. Okay. I, I don't know why I was asked questions by the defense counsel. The book event that you were asked about, did that event happen? So the prosecutor knows where she's going with these questions. Most times the witness does not know why. Uh, uh I didn't speak at the event, but the event still happened. Have you had several events related to that book that have happened? I have. And what events were those? Um, 
Do you mean just in Tallahassee or do you mean in other places? Everywhere. Um, I've spoken at various schools about human trafficking and about my book. Um, I think there was one event that still happened in Tallahassee about a year later. And was, is that the only book you've written or have you written more than one book? I've only written one book. What was the book about? The book was about human trafficking and about the vulnerability. So you can see she, she's a very, very good trafficking witness. problems when it occurs and basically how to recover from it after. Where was the book set? It was set in a fictional town. What was the name of the fictional town? Hiawassee Springs. So Hiawassee. Is it located in the panhandle of Florida? No, I used to see the name when I was driving from Tallahassee to Orlando. So it's somewhere in between. And was the place modeled after? So people are asking, why does she answer so slowly? Hmm. It was definitely somewhere in Florida, but not supposed to be about Tallahassee, no. Who was the central character in that book? So there's three central characters. One was one of my clients, kind of a composite character from Eastern Europe. One was um, kind of a composite character of many clients I represent. So excellent testimony, very slow, and she's very thoughtful. She yeah. thinks about her answers, and that's really important to do, to think about what you're going to say. So a prosecutor doesn't get... ...from Latin America, and one was a public interest lawyer. You up. And was the public interest lawyer Lily? Yes. And is that the character that's sort of based after yourself? No, really more based after a friend of mine. And was Hiawassee, Florida, quote, just a small stop on the way back to what we had previously known as civilization? Is that a quote from your book? That sounds like a quote from my book, yeah. And who's the husband of Lily, the public interest lawyer? You want his name in the book? Yes. I think it was Josh Stone. All right, and what was Josh's employment? Josh was an English professor. I'm sorry, what was your answer? Josh was an English professor. A professor, where did he teach? It's been a while. I wrote the book over 10 years ago. I don't remember what I named the university in the, <laughs> in the North story. Florida State University. That sounds right. NFSU? NFSU sounds right, yeah. All right. And in the book, does Lily lament, quote, we moved to this godforsaken place for Josh's career? Yes, that sounds like a line Lily would say. All right. When you looked at page 187 of the divorce document on Cross, and I'll hand that back to you. So, Mike, you know, the, the question would be is that where is the prosecutor going with this? And is she trying to get us to say things that later on she could come back and question as to, well, why did you say that? And I think she's implying that some of the characters in the book are real characters in real life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this all goes to her state of mind. Now, it, it, what they call state of mind. Uh, what was she thinking? If this is on her mind and she wrote a book, and is the book similar in certain ways to her life? Is, is so that it's almost like an autobiographical, uh, you know, story. So it's an, you know, and so therefore, if I'm a defense attorney, 
before this even begins, I would be objecting all over the place to even the thought that the prosecutor would go with this. But uh, obviously the judge has, uh, before the, we saw the video, the judge has already made a decision that uh, the, the, the prosecutor could ask these questions. And of course, with the warning that, you know, keep it moving, keep it going, keep it going, make your points. And I think um, because she wrote the book herself and, you know, she wrote it after research, even though it was years earlier, and she's very, she's on very um, comfortable ground answering these questions. You could see she was smiling. Um, she seemed really comfortable. Uh, and uh, she was not too fast, not too slow. She seemed very natural. She said, oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't remember. Uh, it was 10 years ago. Uh, I made up. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. It was a combination of two different towns that I passed. And, you know, northern Florida state. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. She seemed very natural. She's a very good witness. And remember, she's also thinking at this time that oh, she's testifying at her brother's trial. She herself is also thinking what may come down in the future. So whatever she says under oath here, she if anything ever occurs in the future where she's now uh, a, a, a defendant in a criminal case, all of those statements that she has made under oath can also be used against her in the in the future. She has to keep her testimony consistent. But she's really, really a very good um, uh, witness right there. I think she's excellent. And the fact that she wrote the book 10 years ago mm -hmm. and she, her recollection, I, I guess she she may have been told, I'm going to ask you some questions yeah. about your book. So if you could be up on it, I may ask mm -hmm. you. She may even, because she, let's not forget, she's a witness. Yeah. So she may meet with the district attorney prior to testifying to perhaps ask her questions and prep her. We all would go to prep before a trial oh, sure. we used to do that on the nypd uh let me just go right to a quick commercial mike folks if you'll if you like real crime true crime from a police perspective then you're in the right place and if you're not subscribed to us police off the cuff go on our youtube hit that subscribe button give us a thumbs up and ring that bell and if you want to contribute to our channel we have a patreon with three different levels and we also have a youtube channel memberships with count them five different levels and we, we appreciate all our subscribers, all our fans, all our friends. 2023 is all over, uh, practically all over. We got, After today, we got one more day. And this is always challenging to me, but it's a labor of love. And I love that you guys listen to the Police Off the Cuff and are part of the Police Off the Cuff family. Folks, if you're looking for a fantastic defense attorney in the New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. You can reach Joe on his cell phone at 718-514-3855. Email him at joe at jmurray-law.com or go on his website, jmurray-law.com. Not only is Joe a fantastic attorney, but he's also a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast. So I want to go back to Wendy's testimony a little bit because part of what our whole dissertation is today is that we believe at some point Wendy is going to get charged. And when uh, that point is, we can't predict that. But we just want to show some of her testimony mm -hmm. to show really that she is one hell of a skilled witness. This is actually my copy. 
back to 127. See the quotes that you read previously from that page? I don't. Okay. It had to do with, let's see if I can find it, that, that you were very unhappy in the marriage. I think it's the third paragraph there. I see that line. Okay, the wife has been very unhappy in the marriage and files her petition for dissolution of marriage in August 2012. The husband continues to characterize this as abandonment, and then it goes on to say that he had been disparaging you to some of the folks at the, at the law school. Do you remember reading that? I do. Was that intended to be the place in this binder where you allege emotional abuse? by your husband? I mean, I, I think it's emotionally abusive to suggest somebody has mental health issues. Okay. What is the Prof's blog? You were asked about that on Cross. Yeah, it was, um, it was a blog that Danny started with some of his colleagues um, to kind of promote community in the law professor world. And who reads the prof, profs? Probably profs other, other law professors and people interested in becoming law professors. Who is on the CRIM prof list serve? I don't know. Were Probably. you on, on the on the list serve for that profs blog? I, I may have been on the listserv at some point. Do you remember seeing the post that you were shown on Cross? I do. Okay. And the post says something about Danny and I are planning to attend a conference that will begin Sunday, July 20th. Is there any other information on what you were shown about Dan's travel plans post-murder other than that? So sorry, guys, it's it's loading. We're having a little bit of a uh, slower Wi-Fi problem today. Hopefully it'll kick in as I'm talking. But, Mike, one of the major things here also is the fact that how do you think her brother feels about sorry. Can you please repeat the question? The post says, Danny and I, I guess it's another professor writing this thing, Danny and I are planning to attend a conference that will be in Sunday, July 20th. Is that the type of information that's that he would typically have on something like the Prof's blog or Facebook. That sounds right. Okay, but as far as the date he's leaving, the flight he's on, that kind of stuff, would that typically be on the Prof's blog? I don't, he wouldn't put what flight number he was on, but he would almost always communicate when he was going on a trip. Okay, so going to a conference that starts July 20th might be an example. Flying to New York tomorrow would be an example, Okay, but, but not, not put, a flight number but he didn't put flying to New York tomorrow in this on this occasion. No. So, Mike, 
I, I have to stop right here on yeah. this. Why her testifying? Why would she agree to do so? Well, she. Um, this looks like uh, it's a. It's a. Uh, the prosecutor is 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 um, questioning her more as if she's an adversarial witness. Um, rather, because sometimes you'll have a witness that'll come into a trial. There'll be a, a witness for, uh, say, for the prosecutor. Uh, they'll bring the witness in. It's their witness. They'll do a direct examination, and suddenly the answers that they're they're giving are not the ones that they've you know that they've gone over with you previously during trial prep. Uh, they're they're going way off script. They're doing some you know that sort of thing, and you're wondering what the hell's going on. Um, if you if you have a, a, a if you call a witness and they start to do that sort of thing, start playing semantic games or whatever they're doing, you may ask the judge, Your Honor, I'd like to question this witness as an adversarial witness. So rather than ask open-ended questions like you would normally would do of your uh, own witness, you would actually almost you'd actually since they're now adversarial the court will now allow you to ask you know those pointed uh questions you know the cross-examination questions rather than give someone a chance to uh explain themselves you'd be like isn't this that and didn't you don't you agree with this and uh those are you know those direct questions where the uh witness doesn't really have a whole lot of room for explaining they're just going to be agreeing with you so i think uh, not having seen the trial, you know, the whole thing, because it was in Florida, but having seen clips of it, I think she's appearing at this point to be uh, at, at questions, at, questioned almost as an adversarial witness by the prosecutors. Well, Mike, knowing that potentially she could be thrown into the trick bag, yeah. what if she said, I don't want to testify? Mm. She doesn't have to, right? Well, you can be compelled with a subpoena to, you know, get into the court. And what if she goes up on the stand and says, I take the fifth? That would be very interesting because she takes the fifth. Um, she could do that. She could do that. You you know, you have that fourth, fourth I'm sorry, that fifth and 14th Amendment uh, right to do that sort of thing. However, it would raise all kinds of issues with, you know, your the with the police department, the detectives and the DA's office. They're going to be like, you know, I'm going to ask you a series of questions, you know, and knowing that they might believe that you're somewhat innocent of these charges. So they're looking to get your brother, but they're maybe nibbling around the edges just to see where. But they might, my point is that they did it anyway. She, it actually hurt her to testify because now she has to live with mm -hmm. her testimony as yeah. a basis for yeah. the district attorney's office and the police yeah. department to have further evidence to go after her. So that just my question is, then why would someone say, okay, I'm not testifying. Okay, bang, here's a subpoena. We're slapping a subpoena on you. Right. Okay, sure, I'll be there. Yeah, I mean. You swear in and then you take the fifth. She's already a suspect. Right. So I'm just right. asking as per sort of strategy. Yeah. Why look, wouldn't her lawyer tell her, look, don't testify. And if you do, take the fifth. And on the advice, and you could say, on the advice of counsel, counsel right. I'm taking the fifth. They can look into that however they want because they're right. going to do it anyway. So my question is, 
how much more will it damage you to testify? Because look, she's a skilled witness, very skilled. Right. But she still, even in all the hours she was on the stand, she said things that sure. threw her into the trick bag, as Phil Grimaldi would say. Yeah, it's probably a strategic move that she made with her attorney, who's you know you don't see in in the in the in the uh, video there because he's sitting in the uh, audience just listening to her. But uh, it's a strategic move. She's taking a chance. Um, she wants to appear innocent because remember she's the widow of the of Dan Markell who was killed. So for her to take the fifth, you know, it would be it. it she could do it. But she risks, uh, you know, increased scrutiny, perhaps in the future, uh, a, a, a different open investigation, opening a new investigation into her own uh, involvement in the crime. Uh, you know, just reviewing all the evidence to see maybe there's some sort of conspiracy charge. Um, but uh, I think she was trying to, uh, along with her attorney, get in there. Ask, answer some questions, and maybe they knew ahead of time where the where the prosecutor was going to go, uh, and they prepped on the book and a few other things. And she wanted to appear as best she could to be, you know, I, I'm just bewildered as you are that this all happened. Um, you know, I've I've no idea how this all occurred, and um, I think that's probably where she went with it. It's risky, but I think it's less risky than saying. Uh, you know, I'm not going to answer any questions. You know, if the, if the judge wanted to hold her contempt, I doubt he would. You know, the, but uh, I think it's a game. You know, it's one of those game, strategic games you play. Absolutely. Maui Swift, thank you so much for the 699 Super Sticker. Wendy received derivative <clears throat> immunity, otherwise would have pled the fifth like she did during her mm -hmm. deposition. Wow, so that's, that's pretty damn interesting, yeah. Maui. Um, Good. Chris B., Thank you so much for becoming a, a YouTube member of Police Off the Cuff. Welcome aboard. And Helen, the Scottish Lama, Helen Scottish Lama became a YouTube member. Welcome to the Police Off the Cuff family. And thank you so much. You know, another big thing that she was questioned about, and many people can wonder about this, is she drove by the crime scene right after her husband was shot. Did we lose oh, the uh, yeah? Oh no, yeah. That would be a very interesting thing to to bring up. How how is it that you actually drove by within a very brief period of time? Because that, as we've talked about in the Coburger case, driving by eleven twenty two Kings Road, you know, you know, about five or six hours after the homicides occurred, and before the police were even uh, called. You know, we talked about that being consciousness of guilt. It's I knew you were going to say it. I, a show can't go by without you saying consciousness of guilt. I can't help it. Everything is consciousness of guilt. Yes. So, so therefore, if you know, that is the, one of the most strangest coincidences on earth, or she was just checking out the handiwork of the, of the shooters and perhaps knew fairly with spare bit of certainty what the actual timing of the shooting would be because he was shot after he dropped his kids off at school. 
and then went to a gym. And so they were pretty much following him and then watching him the whole time and then shot him as he got out of his car in his driveway. Um, and right, I think they went shot right through the driver's side window. So you know, um, Mike, just to, to mention, there were people uh, in the chat, and I'll just mention this, no one by name, that felt the one the one shooter, uh, the Latin King uh, gentleman, Luis Rivera, um, who was cooperating witness, that they had other opportunities and they wouldn't shoot him because he was with his kids. Like, and some people felt like, oh, oh, like, are you kidding me? They still went, they took the deal to kill him. Yeah. Oh, is it complimentary that they didn't shoot him when his kids were there because they were afraid they would shoot the kids? <sighs> I'm not. Feeling, I can't give him a lot of points. No, for that. I'm not feeling a lot of kudos for that. But there are those that do. Oh, they were good criminals. They were very nice criminals. They wouldn't shoot him because he was with his kids. No, I mean that's still going agreed to murder a human being. I gotta agree with you there, Billy. It's maybe it's, they're a little bit more professional than other people would be. So there would be a lot less witnesses, and there would be no other collateral damage to anybody. You know, maybe a bullet would go through Dan and enter the uh, son, you know, that sort of thing. Maybe they were a little bit more skilled and therefore they did it the way they did. But uh, yeah, don't, don't give them, don't give them credit for that. No, I, I don't, but I'm just, yeah, no, the people in the chat, there are yeah. many who have. Yeah. I don't know why this is. Yeah, it won't, it won't boot up. Hang on a second. Hang on, let me just add this to the screen. There we go. She said she barely made it onto Trescott before. She She's talking about driving toward the crime scene. And it was almost like she was trying to see if the job was in fact done yeah. and uh, it's hard to explain. Then what, what were you doing there? Why were you driving by your husband's house and you saw something was going on crime scene tape around his house. He had, had just been with your children or dropping off or picking up your children. And you weren't curious enough to try to find out, well, what, what's actually going on? What's going on here? She saw police. I went to turn on Trescott Drive, but I saw that it had been blocked off by some tape. And so I just kept driving on Centerville. So amazing, right? That she didn't think there it... was tape. Yeah. And an officer was there. I didn't a... see an officer, but I did see a car. Interesting that she didn't roll down a window, stop and ask an officer what happened. Oh, yeah. There's the man I used to be married to. There's crime scene tape around his house. And I'm just going to. You know, Just wondering. Yeah, I, I think that that somewhat shows that she was trying to see, did it happen? Did it go down? Is it completed? Right. I would look A law enforcement marked vehicle. This is around where that police roadblock would have been, according to the officer on the scene's testimony. Wendy claimed she couldn't see what was happening at Markel's house from her car. It's the one you see there with the brick mailbox. Uh, it's about two houses from that speed hump sign. And the road winds out to where it's more visible to see that mailbox, but you can't make out exactly because of the trees, the actual house building. 
So interesting, Mike. And again, that uh, that is a big, strong piece of evidence. And if it's it's uh, it's again very very circumstantial, and yeah. we speak, we've spoken about circumstantial evidence on this show numerous times. And circumstantial evidence simply means that from which which inferences are drawn. It's hard for me to even say that sentence. That from which inferences are drawn is circumstantial evidence. So. That doesn't sound so strong, except pile a lot of it up on top of each other, as in the Koberger case. And we're not going to get into that, but lots of circumstantial evidence starts building truths, starts building, oh, I see. I think I get it, right? Right. Yeah, Billy, She's uh, Wendy's fortunate right now because as of right now, they don't have you know, they can't, you have to use a figure of speech, the smoking gun. They don't have a little bit of smoking gun evidence to rope her into uh, the actual conspiracy. And perhaps her brother and her mother were the, were the driving forces. And maybe she was left out, deliberately left out. But uh, obviously if you're driving by, uh, not coincidentally, you know, I, in my opinion, driving by the crime scene that, you know, shortly after the uh, crime occurred, um, you have a little bit of explaining to do, but it may not be right now. They don't have enough for an indictment. Remember, indictment, and the people in the chat should know, indictment is only based on probable cause. And it, and uh, so it's very, very different, very lo lot less than, than an actual conviction, which is called proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So I don't think the police is a, a closed case whatsoever, even with Donna, with her mother uh, being arrested and charged and there'll be a court case with that. But I think that the prosecutor would love to put uh, to put the handcuffs on Wendy. But I think right now they're just lacking that one breakthrough piece of evidence. You know, Mike, I've said this on other cases that um, sometimes in homicide investigation, uh, the killer will hang around or come back to the crime scene. And we had that many times in Manhattan North where the, the, the murder would be out on the street and there'd be crime scene tape around the, the, the scene and it'd be literally hundreds and hundreds of people that have come out of their apartment buildings to stand outside that tape because they want to see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I used to always say in my mind, I didn't say it out loud, um, hundreds of people know who did this. They all know. They all know. And it's our job to get one of them or two of them to come forward as a witness. And guess what? The shooter might be in that crowd right now because no one's going to point him out to the police. That's, no. you know, snitches get stitches, as they say. And I'm sort of drawing a parallel to this in a way is that she surely wasn't the shooter or the killer in this, but yet, again, I'll bring up your term, consciousness of guilt. She may have a party to this. She may be party to this, that, and that's why she's checking out the scene. So surely that type of evidence cannot help her, can only hurt her. And the district attorney in this did bring this up and kept her, well, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Why did you not go check and see what was going on? And as right. the jury watches that, and surely 
it's not her trial she's speaking at. But guess what? All of this testimony, I believe, can be used if she ever gets arrested. Oh, absolutely. It's all usable if they can get enough on her to, to charge her because it's all under oath. And um, so therefore, she would, uh, in a few, if there was a future trial and she was questioned about the same set of circumstances, uh, why she was there at that time, where is she going, why did she get out of the car, didn't you know there was a marked office uh, car there there was a uniformed officer why didn't you stop and talk all of those things she'd have to give pretty much almost exactly the same answer she couldn't start making stuff up so she's under oath and um and uh and uh, she has to live with that testimony now she i'm sure she and her attorney are keeping their fingers crossed that there you know there's not another piece of evidence out there that may come to fruit, that may be discovered, or somebody may say something uh, to the police or whisper in their ear, you know, and I, I think that's where she's at right now. Brandon Hosman, hope I pronounced your name correctly. The thing is, Wendy is comfortable with her story. She has testified multiple times in court. The reason I put this on the screen yeah. is you're so right. Yeah. She's very, she's almost a pro professional witness. She's so good. Because yeah, she uses the skills she has as an attorney, as a professor, as a student for all those years, to be an excellent, excellent witness. So that is is the key. You're right. The thing is, when he's comfortable with her story, she's testified multiple times in court. Uh, Debbie Gibby, she didn't go screaming, where are my kids? Are they okay? Where's Dan? Wow, Debbie, you're you're going right to that guilty She's not even on trial, but I see Good point. they wouldn't want you as a juror on that case. They get that out, but I well, you're seeing something that implies to you that she's guilty. It's just like you know, cops used to say, "You arrest someone, you go into the precinct, and you put the guy in a cell, and he fall right to sleep." To cops, that was the meter. That said immediately, that guy's guilty because no normal person could be arrested and fall asleep in the cell. They'd be so jacked up and so nervous. And this is not, you know, no one likes to get arrested. But if you right. can just go in the cell and fall asleep, it means you're, you're used to this. You're pretty, it's, it's pretty <laughs> normal for you to get arrested. Good, good point. Good point. Yeah. The informal it's, cop meter, guilt meter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it has no scientific basis whatsoever. <laughs> And it's a cop meter, but when you think about it, it makes a hell of a lot of sense, you know? Sure, sure. So let me play a little more of this. I hope we get this playing right away. Say that Charlie, your brother, this defendant, had explored all options to resolve the problem, including hiring a hitman, and it would cost either fifteen or $50,000. No. And did you have a conversation with Jeffrey Lacoste at your residence that night where you said you you wanted to share something in confidence with him? No. Did you ever say that your brother had seriously hired a hitman where it, you weren't repeating the joke? You no. were serious. All right, still with me, Carl Steinbeck. That so obviously yeah. those questions that the district attorney was asking, she knows the answer to it. Yes, she did all of those things, but Wendy Adelson is a skilled witness mm -hmm. and can lie and tell half-truths and tell no-truths because she is good. She is that good on the stand. Yeah, and interestingly, the, the boyfriend, her former boyfriend, Jeff Lacasse, 
um, who she made some quips to about her brother uh, about it. Uh, it's cheaper to you know, get your car fixed than to buy a, 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 than to get your, uh, your your husband killed or something like that. She and he actually to told the cops that. So when he was questioned, because, um, uh, you know, there was you know, tr they, the, the police are always going around trying to figure out, OK, eliminating suspects. He's he volunteered that information that that Wendy had said, you know, this quip. And there she is on the stand denying. Oh, I never said that. And so, you know, it's his word against her word. But, you know, I, you don't you wonder, you don't think anybody in the jury really believes her at this point. You know, no, but, she, you know, when someone, Mike, when someone could tell a lie and believe it themselves, sure. that is the, the meter to me, another cop meter will use, that the best liars are those that believe their lies. Because even a lie detector probably won't detect deception because they don't believe they're being deceptive because they right. believe their own lies. Right, right. She they, seemed to me skilled in that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's got her wrap down. She knows what she's going to say. And anybody that contradicted her, like um, another member of the family, oh, no, I didn't say that. No, 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 no. Must have been misunderstood. No, no. You know, she's good. She's really no, she's good. She's excellent. Let me play a little more of this and then. We're going next. No, I did not. So you never turned on Trescott Drive that day? I went to turn on Trescott Drive, but I saw that it had been blocked off by some tape. And so I just kept driving on Centerville. Okay, and when you you had to turn around at the tape, right, to go back out. I think I tried to turn right, and it couldn't turn, so I would have made like. So this is the, the when she's talking about her little trip, and what you know you saw it. Like the the kind of turn, like a key turn. You didn't stop at the your husband. Was there a roadblock there? With there was tape. Yeah, and an officer was there. I didn't a... see an officer, but I did see a car. <laughs> But for a Tallahassee. So pretty, pretty interesting, Mike. And, and the whole purpose of that also is to show, again, she's a skilled, skilled um, testifier. And she, she believes her own lies. However, one day she may regret that she ever testified because she may be the person wearing that jumpsuit, uh, you know, in the trial room. And all the testimony she's previously given could come back to haunt her oh yeah oh yeah you know you're you're putting yourself in a little bit of jeopardy by testifying on the stand like she did and she as she did get some sort of immunity however um if they have any other or they develop any other independent evidence that they could use against her in the future um then she could be charged um i don't think that uh the police are not looking at her. I'm sure the police are looking at her, and, and now with her with her mother, they're you know, they're looking at all of her mother's communications, and they've looked at many of them. And if there's any sort of communication from her to the mother or or any other person to her, which communicates or shows that she agreed to the uh, conspiracy, that she was notified of it, she didn't do anything to stop it. She was complicit in it, uh, even in a, in a very, you know, laid back way. Um, you may get a prosecutor who may want to uh, get an indictment against her. So we'll see. But uh, yeah, she's not resting easy as we go into 2024. Not at all. Mike, up on the screen, you see the family Adelson, right? Right. You see the dad, Harvey, the mother, Donna. 
the brother Charles, and of course, Wendy there. Now, what possibility is there that Charlie Adelson and his mother Donna may just get pissed off and offer up Wendy to testify? And I don't know if they, they could cut any deal whatsoever. There probably is no deal to be made. But might they offer up their, their sister in the case of Charlie and their daughter in the case of Wendy? Let's face it. These people are not used to prison. They're not used to jail. You do strange things when you get a taste of those smelly walls inside a jail or a prison. You may just say, hey, I just want to get out of here. I'll, I'll take a couple of weeks for the trial to get the hell out of here for a while. It's possible. It's a very distinct possibility if the brother has kept a few secrets and knows some other information that the police are not yet privy to. Uh, it's possible he may try to, you know, he's doing life without possibility of parole. Maybe they they would might offer him 25 years and possibility of parole, something like that in exchange for a testimony or some other evidence. But uh, that would not be unheard of for, you know, the, the, what they say? Um, there's no, between 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 thieves there's no honor among thieves so uh there may be that he would get tired threatened uh you know perhaps very very scared about his own life and say i can't do life in here i got to get the hell out how can i shorten my stay can i get some other protective custody what what leverage do i have well you have leverage with your sister if you could have some sort of information give to the police they may uh you know work with you um, yeah, yeah, she, and maybe with the mom, I'm not sure. I would think the brother would be more uh, likely than the mom to give up, to give up Wendy because the mother is the mother after all. And the brother might be look, saying, look, I did this for you. And here I am doing life while you just sit out there and enjoy your life. You know, you enjoy your career and I'm sitting here. It was all for the benefit of you, not for me. You may see that sort of attitude from the brother absolutely debbie gibby i think charlie flips <laughs> and i pronounce charlie the way you spelled it once he's in prison but call s lawyer says he could still get a deal some time off a chance at parole or something only if he flips and gets wendy that's what we were just talking about yeah. debbie and i think there is always a possibility of that you know it's uh there's such a possibility well I question, and a lot of you guys maybe know the Adelsons better than we do. Is Wendy Adelson going about her life as if nothing occurred, or is she always looking back over her shoulder, expecting the popo to show up with some handcuffs, right? And they're yeah. not designer handcuffs. They're not by Christian Dior. They are by Smith and Wesson. <laughs> Make right. these handcuffs. They're not the kind of bracelets you get in Tiffany's. They're the kind that you never want to have on your wrists. Yeah. Yeah. She's going to be looking over her shoulders. She's going to be, she's going to be in close contact with her attorney. Yeah. Um, she's got a lot of explaining to do with her own children. Um, you know, there's, you'll, she'll never be free of this. The, you know, she, you, when you make a pact with the devil and you sign in your own blood, you'll never have free will again. And you'll never have freedom again. She's always going to be looking over her shoulder. As you said, in the beginning of the, podcast um there is no statute of limitations for homicide not absolutely. at all patrick Forsythe. i have a feeling charlie's ready to throw his sister under the bus 
especially if he feels betrayed. Ooh, yeah. Betrayal is a uh, is is a thing that uh, no one wants to be betrayed. And look, even wise guys. Well, wise guys flip all the time, but mafia guys, they take the uh, oath of omerta, and mm -hmm. it means nothing once they're looking at life behind bars. Omerta goes out the window. Omerta goes out, and they start singing like like a parakeet, you know. And these are people that have never experienced uh, getting arrested before or going to jail before going to prison. And believe me, it does it does crazy things to you. Uh, Sarah Fernley, Wendy was deeply jealous of her ex-husband, his career, his bond with his kids. Her family came to hate him and were wild about him winning any legal battles. The kids were treated as chattels. Yeah, I think that yeah. this family had some issues. You know, they definitely, uh, that covers a lot of things when you say someone has issues, right? Yeah. Uh, Laura Gregory Harvey is now hanging up on Donna. Oh, well, he's be smart. He doesn't want to have his calls, uh, his calls taped, if that's really the case, Lori. Uh, Legal-minded friends, Karen Cole, I hear, heard Wendy's dating a police officer. I would tell that police officer, run for the hills. You don't want to even be party to any of that stuff. So no, crazy. No, no, no. no, no so, no. you know, Mike, I think today's show was pretty, a lot of fun. It was a yeah. lot of fun uh, recapping this. This was one of the major cases in 2023 and could still be a major case in 2024 as there's still Harvey, Harvey Adelson and Wendy Adelson are still out there still walking free as the mom, Donna Adelson, 73 years old, mm -hmm. and Charlie Adelson facing is was sentenced to life in prison. Donna hasn't gone to trial yet. So, yeah, this case is by no means in one of our um, one of our big, uh, and I'll use the term dissertation again, is we believe Wendy has got some problems in the next few years. And again, it could take a while, could take more than a few years to, for them uh, to put the case together. Donna Champion, if that was my sister behaving like Miss Innocent, I would flip. I hope Wendy's 2024 isn't all strawberries and cream. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, she seems like, though, she's probably a narcissist, you know, uh, Harvey is not taking Donna's calls. Why is Wendy controlling Harvey? Because she's a, she's a control freak. She's definitely she could could the father Harvey not testify against Wendy? What if they all start pointing that way? People yeah. will do things to stay out of the trick bag themselves. You know, uh, Sarah Fernley, hi Rachella. Nice to pop into here, Bill and Professor Gary. They're always on point. Thank you so much. Thank and you. you guys, I've seen a lot of um, new people in the chat today. I hope you enjoyed our show. I hope you uh, subscribe to Police Off the Cuff. It's free to do so. Join us as we go into 2024. Always great to see new people. Always great to uh, see people from across the pond, as we used to say. Uh, and it's a, a great to see new names in the chat. Um Mike, we went on. I, I was saying, oh, maybe we'll just do 45 minutes. Well, that never seems to work out. It always seems that we're narcissists, too. We just like to hear ourselves talk, I think. Uh, yeah. 
Sunset gazing, what is happening to society? People are becoming more and more soulless, soulless, with no value for human life. How about the girl who killed her sibling due to an argument over Christmas gifts? That's life. I hope not. I hope it's not part of my life ever, you know. Uh, used to, we used to see um, murders like that, you know, in the inner city and just it never made sense to us. Never does murder ever make sense, I yeah. guess. You can maybe understand a motive, what motivated somebody, but it never it never makes sense as to why someone takes someone else's life unless it's in self-defense. Other than that, uh, you can't really understand it. And the fact that people just think that they can get away with it, it's uh, that's somewhat baffling, is that they think they're going to get away with murder. Mike, you know, again, we've been on an hour and 24 minutes. Your final words, Mike, and I know you have final words of wisdom and this is, remember, these might be some of your final words for 2023, so make it good. Well, you're putting a lot of pressure on me. Man. <laughs> ah. Oh, Father Geary is hearing confessions today at 5 p.m. <laughs> no, no, no. No, no, Daddy Geary. Daddy Geary. Daddy Geary. Daddy Geary. Um, no, this is a, a, it's a, it's a great case to look at from our perspective, but it is like a Shakespearean tragedy because you have these people who've had such a great impact on people in the area, taking care of their health. And for many, many years, they were considered a wonderful family. And it was all brought down by, you know, anger and, and greed over the children and where no violence at all was ever really necessary. And the, the murder occurs and everyone's lives have been ruined. And, um, this family will never live it down. And, uh, and that's sad. So um, hopefully there'll be some more justice meted out to the guilty in this case uh, in 2024. We can keep our fingers crossed. But also, everyone, have a healthy, happy uh, new year. You know, I just I just saw this in the chat, and I just have to say I didn't know Donald Trump was subscribing to us. <laughs> one one law two fourteen. He's got uh, Donald Trump's <laughs> picture on his. Uh, well, thank you for joining us, even if it's not really Donald Trump, but uh, it's always good for it to have a laugh. To, uh, you know, thank you, Mr. Betsy. Uh, thanks, Bill and Mike. Great discussion tonight. Thank you so much. Sometimes you can actually pull a great show out of. You know, just almost speaking, as we'd say, off the cuff. You know, that's why it's called off the cuff. And we give our opinions. And uh, Laura Gregory, do you think charging Wendy now before Donna trial would be more important to do a crime? I think, Laurie, they will wait till Donna's trial's over to even think about charging Wendy. Because potentially things could come out in Donna's trial that will help the prosecutor to prosecute Wendy. So, guys... We'll probably see you tomorrow. I think we're going to do a show tomorrow at 4 o'clock, recap some of the top cases uh, in 2023. Professor Geary's already signed on. I think Phil Grimaldi. We're actually trying to get attorney Joe Murray to just join us for the last show of 2023. But I want to thank everyone that joined us today. Uh, sometimes you can do a show during the day, and for us it was during the day, 3 o'clock, and it goes great. So, folks, have a great night tonight and to get, prepare for New Year's Eve 2024. I'm not a big New Year's Eve guy. I never, ever make it till the ball drops in Times Square. I'm sleeping. I'm snoring way before then. But still, the next day will be 2024. Have a great day and God bless everyone. Good night. One episode, just ain't enough.